Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound. Hello and welcome to WORT's noontime community conversation called A Public Affair. I'm your substitute host, Bert Zipperer. I'm filling in for Ellen Ruff, who will return next week to this very same place and time. Okay, today we're going to talk about farming family farms, dairy farms, and other farm-related topics with two amazingly wonderful people. Um, I urge you to call in and join the conversation at 608-256-2001. We'd love to hear your your thoughts, your questions. So I am, as I said, I'm super excited to have two guests today. Pete Harden is joining us from Brooklyn, the one south of Madison, not that other one. Pete Harden is the editor and publisher of The Milkweed a dairy newspaper since 1979. It's called Dairy's Best Information and Insights. Pete, welcome to WRT. Good to be here. I should note we moved to Oregon a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. So you, you've gone from the city of Brooklyn to, to, the, to the, the state of Oregon. <laughs> okay, maybe, Oregon, Wisconsin, maybe it's another Oregon. Okay, okay. I love that Oregon. Um, also joining us are, is my old friend, Storman Norman Patterson, is in the studio with me. He's a fifth-generation family farmer. We went to college together. He's also from Brooklyn. Uh, Storman, th- Good welcome. to be here. It is great to have you. I hope it's good being had. Um, again, calling with your questions, and we're going to start off with Pete. So, Pete, um, you published The Milkweed, and you grew up on a multi-generational family farm outside New York City. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, well... I was a, I was a, a town kid, but uh, everything around us in, in Sussex County, New Jersey at that time was dairy. When I was knee-high, there were over 4,000 dairy farms in Sussex County, New Jersey alone, and the industry had evolved since the 1850s or so, serving, helping serve the fluid milk needs uh, by rail to the New York metropolitan area. And our our family farm had been traded uh, f- from the Native Americans for a white calf, and uh, uh, we, uh, we finally sold it, uh, sold it uh, a couple years ago after a long history of, uh, you know, dairy, which, dairying and agriculture, which gave me a basis of knowledge in my professional career. Wow. And, and Sturman Norman, where's your farm? Talk about your farm. I am south of Brooklyn, about five miles. I'm in Greene County. Uh, We are actually a fifth generation at this point farm. It started in 1868 with a gentleman named Adoniram Luchel Patterson. And it's been in the family ever since. Uh, Are those your great, great, great grandparents? Do the math. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 right, it's way up there. It's way yeah. up there. Yep. That is great. But that's the simple history. <clears throat> so how big is your farm? How many acres? It is now 300. Mm-hmm. The, the original uh, family farm is 160. And then uh, the, we purchased a farm right next to it, which is 140. And you milked cows until about 15 years ago. How many cows did you milk? We always stayed right around 50 cows. Mm-hmm. Um, just a little history on that. My father put in the first milking parlor in 1967, first one in, in Brooklyn Township. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I pretty much grew up milking cows in a parlor. Uh, but, yeah, we in 2006, we... We got out of dairy. I'm now a beef farm, cash crop farm, uh, and we can go into that later, why and if and how we got out, but that's the quick history. I think that's a good point. Uh, we will definitely come back to that. Thanks, Sturman. Um, Pete, the milkweed, your, uh, the dairy's best information and insights, the milkweed, you have no paid ads, no corporate subsidy. You specialize in original reporting 
and you're for farmers and friends of farming with the moniker float like a butterfly, sting like a bee on your letter on your head heading there. Uh, talk about the milkweed. Okay. Well, uh, I, back in 70, 1979, when I founded the paper, I was I just didn't see any uh, outlet or any medium in the dairy publishing field that wanted to cover what I felt was the 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 milk marketing and pricing and economics of dairy. So I I, I was only you only had to be half crazy then to be a publisher. <laughs> so I I took the leap and uh, forty. 44 plus years later, we're still going pretty good. And uh, I have, you know, two two main contributing writers, one a, a dairy farm woman from Dane County, Jan Scheppel, mm-hmm. and another crop consultant and organic specialist from New York, Paris Reedhead. And, but amongst us, I think we've got probably at least 140 years of experience in agricultural reporting. So our hair is getting a little gray, but... Uh, uh, there's there's nothing else like the milkweed in agricultural publishing, and we do a lot of investigative reporting. It's a beautiful newspaper, I have to say. I, I, I've picked up a couple copies here at WORT, and I, I tip my hat to you, Pete. This is a beautiful and informative, uh, deeply informative um, newspaper. It's, it's monthly, right? Correct. Um, and ju- just for the full disclosure, I grew up in a cheese factory. My family ran cheese factories up in Manitowoc County. We uh, were the cheesemakers in a farmer's cooperatively owned cheese factory in School Hill, Wisconsin, a little village in southern Manitowoc County. And then we bought a small place of our own in Brilliant when I was about 10 years old. So um, this today's show might be termed uh, two farmers and an old cheesemaker here. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it would be accurate. Um, Speak for yourself. <laughs> okay, there we go. So, Pete, you wanted to start the show off with the genesis of daring in Wisconsin. You called it the greatest economic development success story in U.S. history after the devastation of Wisconsin's lands. Uh, with- Absolutely. Uh, let's say no state is more closely identified with a single food product, or you might argue a single product of any kind, then Wisconsin is uh, linked in the minds of our, our, our nation's citizens and consumers with cheese. And this, uh, this did not happen just by, uh, by pure luck. Back in the 1870s and 1880s, the visionary leaders in the state, uh, such as Governor William D. Horde, realized Wisconsin had a problem, serious problem, about its future economy because the extractive industries on which our state had been originally based, the wheat production and uh, timber industries, those natural resources had pretty much mined the soil and uh, uh, clear, clear-cut much of the timber, particularly in the southern third of the state by that time. So what the state was left with was, you know, cities and towns and villages and rail lines. But what was the economic driver going to be in the future? So the visionaries looked at our resources, including um, climate, soils, moisture, the animal husbandry skills of the northern European immigrant population base. And their conclusion was that creating a, a uh, thriving dairy industry would restore the soil fertility, would create an economy selling hard products such as cheese and butter. And then we have the, the ancillary industries such as sausage and leather. So now we're about seven, ge- seven generations out from the, those post-Civil War decades, and dairy uh, is an industry which in total yields about 45 48 billion dollars of economic activity annually in the state of Wisconsin so uh, and it's not now I have to qualify this but it's not an extractive industry uh, although we could do better on certain environmental areas but um, on the whole it's a good industry producing food, using the animal's ability to digest plant-based materials that result in milk, which is processed into a wide variety of human foods. 
that provide our necessary fat and proteins and calcium on a daily basis. Yesterday you talked about how the cows also regenerate the soil. Yeah, the, when properly managed, the manure resource is a tremendous uh, enhancer of fertility. That's good. And also yesterday you mentioned, we talked on the phone yesterday for those of you listening, um, you talked about how much cheese you think you've eaten in your lifetime. <laughs> I only talked about the cheddar and I think I've, I think I've made a bit over half a ton of cheddar disappear. In my life. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You know, I'm going to do the math on, for me later because I, I think I can compete on that level I, uh, considering what I eat in my diet. Um, Very good. So, so Pete, you were talking about the big issues in dairying with me yesterday, and you talked about antitrust issues, the integrity of dairy products, especially Monsanto's BGH synthetic hormone in cows, the research on human health effects. Um, what do you think we need to talk about when we talk about dairying? Well, for starters, let's go back to the farm and note that you know, there's great, there's great discussion and emphasis on sustainable practices mm-hmm. uh, and dairy on, on, with a straight face. We got to admit in dairy that we have uh, numerous improvements we can make in terms of uh, making our carbon footprint smaller in light of the greenhouse gas issues. But for starters, sustainability starts with a sustainable milk price. And uh, right now we are, we are, our dairy farms in Wisconsin for the most part are struggling. Uh, 2002 saw record milk prices received by Wisconsin farmers and others nationwide. Last year, the prices were about five to six dollars per hundredweight lower. That's 23 versus 22, which is about a 25 percent, you know, 20. 24% uh, cut in price from year to year while the expenses remain sky high. And uh, the government has a, vol- USDA has a voluntary uh, milk, sort of a milk check or milk price insurance program called dairy margin coverage, which I don't want to get into the complexities of it, but because grain prices collapsed in the fourth quarter last year, uh, this insurance program or milk price safety net basically evaporated. And uh, right now, um, you know, for December milk, cheese milk was around $16.11. Farmers could have got the same price 25 or 30 years ago at times. It's a, uh, the, 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 a lot of dairy farm families, in my opinion, and their lenders, are facing some tough, tough uh, decisions as they look ahead to 2024. Uh, do they continue? Do they cut back? Do they sell the cows? And um, uh, all this has taken place in a scenario whereby we're looking at a collapse in grain prices because of, uh, in part, great part, global trade issues. So it's a the, the economics of agriculture, as they apply to the decisions of, of the folks working the land and milking the cows, it's a tough time right now, and farmers are looking hard to find reasons to see better. Exactly. So, so, Pardon me. So, Pete, you said $16.11 was cheese milk price. Now, let's, yeah. let, let's clarify for our listeners. That's $16 for 100 pounds of milk. Yes. So, or about, oh gee, a dollar fifty, dollar sixty per gallon, dollar fifty or so per gallon of milk, or perhaps a um, dollar fifty in terms of the cheese value uh, of the milk going into cheese plant. That's stunning to me. Um, and and that gallon of milk that you may pick up and carry home—that's eight point six pounds, essentially. Correct. Because. Um, I was working in my family's cheese factory back in the 70s. And I remember in the mid-70s when the price went up over $10 a hundredweight. And we were celebrating in the bars in Berlin, Wisconsin. Um, and you're telling me that almost 50 years later, it's $6 more than that, which is crazy. 
Um, it's been it, it's been it's been worse, and it's not, at times it's been a lot better in the, in those fifty years. But but the 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 gyrations of milk prices make it awful difficult for folks to plan, modernize, upgrade, pay their bills, etc. Let's go to Norman. Take it away, I'm, Norman. I'm reminded of uh, something, and now I've been out of dairy for 15 years, but the one thing that always kind of struck me with uh, the supply side is what little bit uh, means a surplus versus not enough. Like, and Pete, I know you could say a lot more to this, but, you know, it doesn't take much production to put us in a surplus situation. And that's part of the the hard part of controlling, keeping prices where we need them. Am I missing the boat here? Or? Not at all. Not at all. And uh, our, our primary pricing, uh, oh boy, epicenter right now for dairy commodities is the is the daily cash market trading at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Mm-hmm. And there have been numerous examples since the late 90s when the cash markets went to Chicago. Uh, that numerous examples that uh, sometimes parties tried to drive up the price and other times they, other times parties tried to drive down the price. But it's not a, it's not a free market. There's far less than 1% of all the cheese. It's only cheddar traded in Chicago, cheese-wise. But less than 1% of the cheese is traded at that cash market on a daily basis. But it sets the price for 100% of all the cheese priced in the, in the nation. And that's a, a pretty thin basis to, to have as a, a pricing uh, mechanism. So there's there's been a hundred different ways over the years to try to control the supply. Uh, my dad was a member of NFO back in the sixties. Um, That's the National Farmers Organization. Yes, National Farmers Organization, and uh, you know they did the milk dumping dumping thing. My dad was involved in that. Um, you know, and then there's uh, CWT, which is the program through which we got out of dairy. Uh, over the years, there's been so many different ways to try to control the supply. That's correct. And uh, some folks point to the Canadian provinces' examples of milk quotas where farmers are limited as to basically how much milk, or more specifically, milk fat, they may market on a monthly basis. Uh, where Canada, Canada has a very stable industry, but right now it costs more. The quota for one cow's worth of milk literally caught, is worth more than the value of the cow, which in my opinion is getting a little bit skewed. But going back three or four years when we were having a serious price uh or supply problem, uh, i.e. too much, uh, a number of dairy plants, private plants, and co-ops instituted their own internal base plans, and others, given good sales, perhaps felt they didn't need to. <clears throat> so the industry, there have been a lot of modifications, but we're still, we're still searching for the right toolbox. Right. So you're listening to Storm and Norman Patterson, a fifth-generation farmer from Greene County, and Pete Harden, editor and publisher of The Milkweed, talking about all things dairy farming and family farming in Wisconsin. We urge you to call us at 608-256-2001 with your comments, your questions. We'd love to include you in this. And we're going to get back to, to our guest, Pete and Norman. So, Pete, yesterday you were talking about fluid milk and how few remaining processors of any size are in the region. Correct. One of my favorite topics in the last year or year and a half, journalistically speaking. Currently in the upper Midwest region, which you know stretches from northern Illinois to uh, Minneapolis, all of Wisconsin, et cetera, 
There are only two major fluid milk processors remaining in business, which distribute um, milk to supermarkets, other retailers, to schools and institutions. These two are Dairy Farmers of America, which has for, for probably 12 years owned the Kemp's uh, label of products. And then in 2020, DFA acquired from bankruptcy the Dean Foods label and, and facilities. So then the, and the other firm is Prairie Farms, which is a smaller uh, competitor, and I, I put competitor in quote marks on that one. But these two firms uh, basically control fluid milk processing. Now there are smaller firms, like take Quick Trip, which, uh, you know, that's strictly an in-house operation. They get milk from farmers, process it in their own plant, sell it in their own stores, and use the residual cream for their good ice cream products. Um, and then you have little players like Lamers uh, over near uh, Lake Winnebago. But on the whole, there's virtually, there, there's very little competition, and that is showing up in retail prices. And here's where it gets pretty nasty. Uh, in July of 22, the third competitor in the, in the upper Midwest fluid milk business closed its plants, one near Rockford, one up near Green Bay. Who was that? Uh, Borden Select. Okay. So then, in the second half, in the second half of 22, Chicago area consumers paid 53 cents more per gallon for their fluid milk. When the national average increase for those prices only went up three cents, and I argue most of that three cent increase was due to the Chicago and Minneapolis uh, prices going up. So long story short, um, and, and then things have got worse since uh, the, the, in terms of retail price gouging. Uh, last year, Chicago consumers for whole milk paid, goodness gracious, I think they paid a little over a dollar above the national average. And this is at the same time, and, and the prices kept escalating, and this is at the same time last year, the fluid milk processing community in the upper Midwest saw a roughly $4, $4.5 decline in their raw milk costs, according to the federal monthly milk pricing system. So long story short, these, these two firms are not only jacking the consumer prices repeatedly uh, and also have, have benefited from far lower prices for milk, the milk they brought into their plant in 23. And, and what about the school milk programs? There's oh, no competition for pricing. Correct. School milk has been, when that, when that firm closed, uh, closed up in July of 22, uh, school milk contracts had already been sent out. Or, so the whole school milk process from Chicago to Minneapolis was, was uh, thrown for a loop. And they were particularly in the middle areas, like uh, up around Marshfield, Wisconsin, over towards Eau Claire, et cetera. In that heart of West Central Wisconsin dairy industry, a lot of schools couldn't even get bidders for their school milk. So uh, last year, uh, Nasonville Dairy stepped up. I should say in 22, Nasonville stepped up on a, an emergency basis and provided about eight or ten local schools in, say, in the Stratford area, Wittenberg, uh, with school milk. This year, they, based on the quality and, of their product and service, they've more than doubled the number of schools they serve locally. And the irony is this small processor, they, press, they milk their own cows, they put the, the, the milk in eight-ounce plastic pouches that are punctured with a straw, and that's their distribution system. And it's a you know a local business stepping up to fill a need that the big boys are not. Right, right. Norman, talk talk about your your farm. You you had to face uh, these costs and price issues, and and you, you got you, you went out of dairying fifteen years ago. Talk about that a little bit. 
Well, it, it was a lot of reasons for getting out. Um, prices at the time weren't great. We had production issues. I'll be the first to admit that. Uh, you know, just having some issues and and family. Um, my kids were coming into high school involved in sports, being a, a small dairy. Uh, I didn't hire any help. Uh, I, looking back, maybe I should have. Maybe I should have expanded a little bit, but I didn't want to. So I just, and my father was getting older and not involved. As it, you know, I used to have him as backup to milk mm-hmm. cows when my kids had sporting events and it just, it just, uh, and the CWT was going on, and I, that's uh, cooperatives working together. Okay, thank you. Uh, and there was checkoff money that, and Pete could explain that a lot better than me. But I utilized that to get out, and <clears throat> I'm not going to lie, I was nervous about the cash flow. You get used to a milk check every other week, and all of a sudden you're reliant on uh, grain sales, and I went to beef. The The thing that I will say that kept me going for the first two years after getting rid of dairy was we were allowed to keep the offspring from the cows, therefore we had heifers, that we brought raised up to bread heifers. And at the time, the bread heifer market was very strong because uh, because milk prices were strong at that time, which, you know, people thank me for selling my cows because the milk prices went up. Well, that's <laughs> that, that, I'm, I had a very little bit to do with that. But uh, that that maintained my cash flow for a couple of years, to where I was able to get the the beef operation a little more up to speed, and learn how to grow cash crops. I I never thought of myself as a cash crop farmer when I was in dairy. It was you know I grew it for the cows and whatever was left, you know if I had I could sell. But I had to kind of relearn or, or learn, not even relearn, how to do cash crops and how to market crops. And, you know, it, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, but like I said, the, the springing mm-hmm. heifers really held me up for the first couple of years. And uh, we've, we're still there and, and doing doing okay so 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 in my experience small family farm farmers that i've known that's a relationship with those cows i mean it's a small farm and to sell the cows is is really hard it's a it was a hard day uh it was a hard day to to put them on the truck and send them down the road Uh, I don't, that's not a date that I've recorded in the, in the family farm, uh, books. I mean, it, it's in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't remember the date, yeah. but, uh, I all, what I always wished I knew was when the first cow was milked on that farm, because I know I'm sure there was never an interruption mm-hmm. of, of cows being milked on that farm from the first day it it happened and i'm i would assume it happened with adoniram the first patterson on the farm i just don't have Mm -hmm. records uh to show that well years ago when our small cheese factory closed after my dad's death and i was going back and divvying up the milk cans we still got milk in by milk cans and I talked with Irvin Mertz, who was about 80 years old. And he had milk cows every 12 hours for his entire life. Mm-hmm. And he was this wonderful, wonderful, crusty old farmer. And I'd known him forever. And he, he and I stood in the middle of his driveway. And the cows were going. And he was just crying. 
He was just like, Zippy, what am I going to do? You know, he's 80 years old. But his whole world was no different. And it just touched me deeply. It was, it was a hard day for yeah. me. And I, I think probably, you know, yes, I didn't like to do it. And it was a sad day. But the reasons I was doing it, like, you know, for my kids mm-hmm. and absolutely uh, having more time to spend with them, I was probably more nervous about nervous about the future and my cash flow but but that all worked out and we're still here today and uh my grandfather leon he uh he hauled milk in the milk cans and Mm -hmm. he was a strapping big man he could he could grab (laughs) one in each hand and just and those milk trucks back in the day you know, the platform was three, four feet off the ground. Oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. had to get him up there, and he'd take one and sling it up there and then sling the other one up with the other arm, and I I could barely barely lift him. I, uh, when, when I was 10, 12 years old, we still had the stanchion barn, and we had the milk buckets. You went around to each cow with the buckets, milked the cows and dumped it into a pail and carried it into the milk house to put in the strainer buckets for the cooler. Mm-hmm. And, of course, my dad had to build a platform in front of the cooler so that I could get up high enough oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. With, the, with the milk can to dump it into the strainer pan. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sounds very familiar. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, back in, back in the day, I mean, dairy farming is really doing the impossible on a regular basis. You, and, but you're surrounded by other dairy farmers doing the same thing. So there's this community. Um, in 1930, there were 170,000 dairy farms in Wisconsin. Um, and always willing to help out each other right. when, when needed. Um, and, and back in those days, there were 2,500 cheese factories in Wisconsin. Yep. And Dane County alone had 91 cheese factories, and 35 of them had a Mount Horeb address. So um, there was a very different time. Today, how many dairy farms are around you? Oh, boy. They're all, you know, you got to go south about four miles to a, a bigger dairy. Um, the nearest dairy to me anymore uh five miles i guess and if you go back 15 20 years in that five miles you could probably count 12 or 14 dairies yep Um, Yep. there but i was glad to raise my kids on a dairy farm even though i got out you know when they were coming into high school but just a recent example uh, we have a cabin up north and I was able to go up there with my son-in-law ice fishing this last weekend. Uh, but I still have beef cows and steers. And my daughter offered to do the chores. And I'm like, great, okay. Well, it turned out to be the worst uh, worst weekend weather-wise. But she she buckled up and went out and... Yeah, she felt bad. She dropped a pail of corn walking through the snow drifts, but uh, she she did it, you know, and and no complaints. And uh, that's that's just a testament to growing up on a farm. Yep, there was that old phrase that uh, we we do the difficult stuff every day, and the impossible stuff takes us a little bit longer. Uh, yeah, but we still <laughs> yeah. do it. So, Pete, how how familiar does this sound to you? Quite, and and what. What uh, Norm relates, uh, it's the experience of virtually every dairy farmer in the country, particularly, you know, going back a generation or two. Uh, today in Wisconsin, as of the end of December, we had about 5,600 dairy farms uh, licensed by the state ag department, and we lost 420 last year. So bottom line, uh, the numbers keep going down. Uh, and the the far average farm size is bigger and bigger. So talk about the effect on on communities when, um, I mean, I'm I'm thinking of the old uh, study called As You Sow, S-O-W, by Walter Goldschmidt 
back in the 40s, just looking at small-scale agriculture versus large-scale agriculture and the effect on communities, um, that has a significant effect on, on democracy and communities, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, starting with, as, as Norm mentioned, the, the, the quality of many of the kids uh, raised on, on dairy farms and other farms, their sense of responsibility, uh, understanding of life processes, mm-hmm. uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, the communities have gone backwards uh, to a degree. And, uh, uh, you know, is this a natural progression? I would argue that, yes, for generational, well, well, I would argue that for generational reasons, that's been one reason why folks have got out of farming. But how many kids looked at the, or listen to their parents complaining about paying the bills over the kitchen table mm-hmm. at night and, and thought, I'm never going to be a Why? Farmer. Yep. Why? Good farmer. point. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the communities have lost something, and uh, um, we, may, we may never get it back, but I think just as we have successful cheese plants, small, medium, and large size, there, there remain... Uh, opportunities for dairy farms of all size but the small like as with the cheese plants the smaller size farms have to be extra good and and perhaps supplement their income with off-farm off-farm income Uh, but uh, we we still have all sizes but and and some argue that the uh, the folks in the middle you know milk and say 150 to 300 cows are most vulnerable because of labor issues and uh other efficiencies of scale uh, they face. I I would not have, I wouldn't be here today, excuse me, if it wasn't for my wife working off the farm for insurance. I mean, that was huge. Uh, there's just right. no way I could have paid uh, health insurance with the farm income. It was really all the other expenses. Yeah, yeah. And that and that's a a critical factor today as the off farm employment opportunities have sweetened and the benefits packages have 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 improved. So there's that draw also attracting uh, folks to to give up uh, so much time on the farm, but take an off farm job. Yes. So that's a big shout out to Marcy Patterson. And uh, we know you're listening to us, Marcy. So we just want to say hello. Hello. And, and hope all's good <laughs> down there at home. Hey, we got, <coughs> excuse me, we invite you to call in at 608 256 2001. Join the conversation. And we do have a message from Mary. Thanks for calling, Mary. Um, here's your question for you two guys. Where does Organic Valley fall into this conversation? I've bought their milk for years and I haven't heard their name come up. May I take that one? Please, please, take, please, take it please away. do. Yep. Okay. Organic Valley was born in the early 90s as a response by a nucleus of, of stubborn farmers who wanted to guarantee a supply of dairy products to consumers that was not produced using Monsanto's recombinant bovine growth hormone. So. If there's one good thing we can say about Monsanto is it inspired organic dairying and other other uh, organic agricultural and, and limited input uh, applications. Uh, organic Valley has grown significantly. I think they've got about around 17, 1,800 producers stretching from Maine and across the Northeast, Ohio, Indiana, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and they have some membership in Oregon. Organic Valley, um, they don't own, to my knowledge, I don't think they own many processing plants, but they have their products, their consumer products, processed by other firms and and then distributed to retail. Um, Organic Valley has, you know, they've done a good job. There's been room for improvement. but uh, the orga- higher value of organic milk has allowed farmers to uh, certain farmers to maintain their relatively small or medium size 
size operations and enjoy the higher returns price-wise from producing organic milk. So, so Pete, I'm going to take us in a little different direction. Um, you're talking about Organic Valley. Yesterday we were talking about cheese plants in Wisconsin. You were saying it's important to highlight the the good work being done by some of the local cheese plants. Could you talk about that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, as we noted a little earlier in the conversation, there are about 125 cheese plants in Wisconsin currently, and we certainly do not have the density of them per square mile that we used to. But uh, the smaller southern, southern southwestern Wisconsin has a variety of cheese plants size-wise, some big, some medium, some small. But you take some of the smaller producers, uh, they have to do an extra special job to get a premium to, to stay ahead of the, the big bad wolf, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I would point to uh, outfits, uh, firms such as Cedar Grove Cheese up in Plain, Wisconsin. Uh, Bob Wills is a, is a miraculous and creative uh, cheese plant operator and marketer. You've got uh, several plants in the region operated by Car Valley Cheese. Uh, Car Valley is, in, you know, you go to one of their cheese stores, they have an amazing array of products. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, Arena Cheese just west of Madison, just west of Mazomany. They have quality uh, 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 Colby and uh, uh, I can't say Kojak because that's a trademark phrase, but Colby, uh, Monterey Jack, uh, Marbled Cheeses, uh, and that that, that store at uh, Arena Cheese, my cheese store, is just about my favorite cheese store in the state, and you can see things, cheese being made through the big window. Oh, yeah. Then you got down by Broadhead, you got the Decatur cheese, which produces very good quality cheese and provides a, a market for local milk. So it's so you have the small guys shining, but you also have some huge players doing well. And I would point to Bel Gioso cheese up in Denmark, Wisconsin. The, the family that owns Bel Gioso came over in 79 and started making cheese in a provolone in a tiny, tiny little cheese plant. Well, today they own eight cheese plants in Wisconsin, two in New York, and the Bel Gioso brand, brand of retail cheeses is just spectacular in terms of their taste and quality. So we have, you know, the, the, the emphasis on quality and higher level marketing strategies is what keeps the most successful firms uh, uh, afloat and hopefully thriving, but it's, it's, not, it's not an easy game. It's not I, an easy game. I like to think there's room for the big guys and the little guys. That's kind of always been my mm-hmm. thought on that. I mean, it's, you know, you got to have a good product consistently and, and marketing and people skills. Mm-hmm. And, and let's not forget about Tony Hooks and the Raleigh family. Absolutely. Yeah. Hooks over in Mineral Point uh, with their championship cheeses. And I think we saw they're selling, was it 20-year-old cheddar recently? And then the Raleigh's down uh, on Highway 11 south of Darlington are renowned for the quality of their cheeses. And, yes. and I think there's a Bronco cheese factory down there. I think so. There but was. I, I don't know if it's still. I, yeah. I don't know about that one. Okay. Um, we've got a few minutes left. Feel free to call 608-256-2001. Join the conversation here. Um, and we're with Storm and Norman Patterson, dairy farm and, farmer, and Pete Harden, uh, publisher of The Milkweed. I just got alerted that there is a call and take it away. Hello. Hi. Hi, welcome um, to WRT. Hi. Hi. Um, there's been a really good uh, series in uh, the New York Times uh, running over uh, last year or so about groundwater uh, nationally, and it makes it extremely obvious that uh, places like Idaho and California that have 
uh, elbowed uh, Wisconsin farmers out of the dairy market are doing so by mining their water aquifers, Mm -hmm. which suggests to me that this uh, current situation may not last forever. And I was wondering what your guests uh, have to say about the long-term prospects for agriculture in Wisconsin, given... I respond to that one, Pete, Pete, go for it. Yep. Okay. Uh, the New York Times continuing series on the uh, uh, drawdown of our nation's groundwater in many regions of the country has been a real jaw-dropping series that puts, puts, has put numbers on uh, the problem we suspected, but the numbers are probably, in general, a lot worse than we suspected. So, yes, California... Uh, <laughs> They've had more than their share of water crises, which will continue. Uh, The Southwest, such as Arizona, uh, New Mexico, West Texas, drawing down the aquifers, same uh, in Kansas and Oklahoma. Uh, But uh, so so uh, you can only you can only mine the groundwater for so long. And quite frankly, uh, I gave a speech in Green Bay at a water conference uh, back in 16 suggesting that we ought to meter groundwater use by mm-hmm. the largest users and, and, and assess a, fi- a fee for, you know, so many thousands of gallons or millions of gallons on a sliding scale upwards basis. But at the same time, we face these challenges in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. There, there's, I believe, one dairy in the central Sands area that has 49 high-capacity wells drawing millions of gallons of water a day out of the, wow. the central sands uh, aquifer. That can't continue. So, uh, unfortunately, Wisconsin's political interests have created a set of circumstances whereby water use, uh, contamination of water quality, and contamination of air quality, this is all my opinion, mm-hmm. have, have been... <coughs> torpedoed in this state by the political interests, and we can do a lot better in terms of managing our aquifers, our water quality, surface and groundwater, as well as air quality. So we've got one last question. RJ, we've got about five minutes here. RJ asks, is there anything local government can do? What, what, what needs to happen for dairy farming across the state of Wisconsin from both of your perspectives? Norm, you want to go first? Read that question again. <laughs> Is there anything local government can do? Um, I'm thinking back in the... A friend of mine who I went to third grade with up in Mimi Elementary in Mimi Township of Manitowoc County just sent me a, a copy of a receipt that we paid a year of school milk. So you paid for your school milk for in a once-a-year lump sum of $1.80. So it was a penny a day for milk. Um, as an example, I think, of... of government policy. What could government do? Well, I can only think on the township level, I guess, and the hot topic for 30, 40 years has been uh, how do we control development in our townships and, and also through the county. I know my dad was uh, chairman of Brooklyn Township 30 years ago when things really uh, ramped up as far as development goes. So you're talking and, about houses and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was torn by the fact that he knew farmers that were close to retirement but didn't have a lot of money, and their retirement plan was to sell off a couple of five-acre lots. That was their... You know, you have that, and then you have just the people that want to come out and buy five acres and controlling that. I guess what I'm saying is controlling the land available Mm -hmm. for small farms. Um, Mm -hmm. That's only one part of the puzzle that that I can think of. That's a good one. Can I get a couple points in, please? Sure. Okay, for starters, I think we need to look at manure management on a statewide basis and emphasize composting the manure instead of putting it into uh, manure lagoons or or promoting manure digesters, the 
in my opinion, the digesters are an economic travesty, producing methane to burn it and then creating CO2. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, in terms of economic development, one of my biggest dreams is that Wisconsin, the dairy industry, could come together and develop a, we'll call it mail order, oh, that's an old term, but a system of marketing 10 or 20-pound boxes of cheese at a, at a of quality Wisconsin cheese at a respectable price to consumers because, you know, call it a, a Sam's Club uh, or, or Costco-type approach to mail-order cheese as opposed to the, uh, some of the, the well-known cheese, Christmas cheese gift boxes that charge, goodness knows, you know, 20, 30 bucks a pound for, for some of their wares. I think we could get investors from the dairy industry, publicize the fact that farmers and cheese plants are reaching out to consumers to sell quality Wisconsin cheese, publicize the bejeebers out of it, and move this cheese in a way that brought and retained profit back to the farm and the cheese plant. And then finally, it's beyond state government, but at the federal level, I think it's a sin that we are not uh, providing food directly to the Palestinian people mm -hmm. in their times of dire need. Uh, we've, we've got the food resources, uh, and yet we're watching this population uh, facing famine. That is a beautiful statement. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Mm -hmm. um, Pete Harden, Norman Patterson, we've got 30 seconds. Any last great hopeful thoughts to end this hour and I've really, really, really loved sharing time. I hope we do this again soon. But, but yeah. your last thoughts? Uh, I'll what? start. Uh, zip, as <laughs> I've known you for years. <laughs> exactly. uh, I'm, thanks for having me come in. I mean, it's, it's an experience, and I'm more than happy to talk about the family farm. Maybe we'll do it again sometime. I, but uh, and, and Pete, I, your oh, knowledge I is bottomless, and I enjoyed listening to you. Thank you, Norm. My, my, let me paraphrase Marie Antoinette. Let him eat cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And cheese, as we know, is milk made immortal. Milk doesn't last long, but cheese certainly does. You have listened for the last hour to Stormer Norman Patterson, fifth-generation family farmer from Greene County. Uh, Pete Harden, the publisher and editor of The Milkweed. Um, I want to say thanks to Ricky out there at the reception desk, Jack, the engineer, Jade, and Shally making all good things happen. I've been honored to be your host for the hour, Bert Zipper. Please um, go out and buy some cheese today and uh, have a great rest of the day. Thank you.